Well, hey now, you're an all-star. Welcome to the show. It's the Elevate Yourself podcast. And I'm Robin, I'm your host, and I, I get to do this. I say it all the time. People say I have to do something. No, you you get to do this. And I feel super lucky because I get to work for Elevation Corporate Health. And in each episode of this podcast, I get to have a conversation with folks from all different walks of life about how to elevate yourself. And it's my hope that these conversations will make you think, they force you to change your best, and as a result, help you get a little closer to becoming the best version of you. As I said, I work for Elevation Corporate Health, and we have been in business for over 26 years, creating customizable solutions for your fitness and wellness needs. That's right, folks, 26 years. Here's a fun fact. Only 25% of businesses make it 15 years or more. Well, we've been doing it for 26 years, so we, we, might, you know, we might know what we're talking about. I don't know. I'm just saying we've been around for a while, and we have seen it all. So whatever your needs might be, we have got you covered from fitness management, online training to on-site classes, integrated technology. We help small and large groups alike get healthy and stay engaged. I encourage you to learn more about us at elevationcorporatehealth.com and you can follow us on social media at Elevation Corporate Health. Well, today on the show, I am excited to uh, introduce a guy that has been a, a mentor to me. Um, he was once upon a time my boss, and we get into that in this conversation, um, his story and his journey, but he has this an amazing knack for thinking big picture and yet small picture in leadership. Um, he, he's just, uh, he's a fascinating inspiring human being. And I, I hope that you enjoyed this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it. Um, I encourage you to follow Pouring with the Heart Hospitality on Instagram and social media. And uh, yeah, let's get into the show. Here we go. Person on this list was our guest today, Andrew Abrahamson of Pouring with the Heart Hospitality. Um, Andrew, um, as I said earlier, uh, he was my boss once upon a time, so I'm a little anxious about this. And he's also, I like to consider uh, Andrew a, a mentor because it's what he's been to me when I took over a role of leadership. Um, he, he took the time to, to sit down with me, to to give me some words of advice and some thoughts and just on culture and productivity. And um, it's, it, you've just got an awesome outlook on everything. So Andrew, welcome to the show. Thank you for doing this. I really, really appreciate you uh, being on the Elevate Yourself podcast. Thank you, Rob. That's, that's very generous and very kind of you. It's a lot to live up. <laughs> well, um, I guess the the first thing I, I want to say is, uh, and I like to ask everybody this, and I, I don't. We may have talked about this before, but I, I do it in my uh, interviewing when I'm hiring somebody. Um, I say start at birth and go. Um, I think you learn a lot about somebody. So Andrew, start at birth and go. Yeah. Um, 
Well, I was born in the Pacific Northwest in Seattle, Washington, and uh, grew up there as well. So I, I was born into a family. There's three brothers, so I, I all very close in age. So I grew up with a real rambunctious household, and uh, my parents separated when I was pretty young. So most of my life grew up with a a single mother and my brothers, and um, you know, just just got by in, in a lot of respects. We we did didn't have a lot of abundance around us and, and had a lot of hard times, but, um, but ultimately in a strange way, I've always thought that I kind of had like an idyllic childhood. There was something about like living in the Northwest, there's forests all around us and we lived in a neighborhood with a lot of other kids. So every single day it was just like, get out of that house as fast as you can. It, once you get a bike, it's just like you hit that bike and you're ripping around the streets playing all day long, coming back to just eat brief little spurts of food and right back outside playing cul-de-sac tennis ball baseball and capture the flag in the woods and like every fourth of july like ultimate fireworks show was done by yourself and it was it was a really cool place to live and grow up and and i i was born in 82 so right before um before really technology had taken over so i, I kind of by the time like windows 95 had come out and, and aol and stuff i really was in my teens so my whole childhood was kind of spent the old the old way um a little bit of TV and a VCR, but ultimately outside. And it was really pretty great. And I, I, challenging, of course, but um, but I, I loved it. And I, I loved where I grew up and I love my family. What, uh, what makes you, I guess my first question is how, everything you said, I, I just love that you turned that into a positive and you're like, that, that was an ideal childhood, right? We could, you could say that like your, your circumstances or parents separating or w whatever it is it could have been a, a negative, but instead you just, you look at it like it was a total positive. Yeah. Cause there, I, I mean, and there's, that's not just like, like a mind trick that you play on yourself where you're like, right. you, the world is what you see it or perspective is everything. It's, it really is that element of if you if you examine people that have had success and, and really had true growth at something, it all the growth always came through some kind of challenge or obstacle or difficulty. Like it's it's the very nature of how like even the human body grows. If you want it to grow, you must hurt it. You you actually have to like tear it and rip it and and take it to its limits. And so I think that you'll see it with maybe like the good example is the rich kid that grows up and, and has everything and never had to get a job and could go to college without having to worry about it and had tutors and never had to worry about um, bills getting paid. And, and, and they, they often find themselves struggling. If nothing else, just struggling to find purpose and meaning in life. And like, so there is this funky thing that like the, the real richness comes through the obstacle and comes through the challenge. And so I, I even have that mindset of myself, like, and anytime that I start to feel comfortable or get good at something, I, I want to look for the next thing that I suck at or, or make myself uncomfortable again. Cause I, I, as long as I know I'm like contending for something, then, then it, I'm, I'm less afraid of failing. It's, it's when I'm totally content and calm and, and quiet that I start to f fear failure because it, uh, it, it feels like I can't fight my way out of it. Like I've always even thought just in terms of, of like working at, at some kind of a dream that was like, well, if this all blows up, if this all ultimately goes to shit, I I'll be all right because I know how to work 
and, and I like work. I like putting in the long, hard day's work and I don't mind living in an apartment. I, I don't, I don't mind not having a car. Like I, I've been able to find contentment in so many other ways and probably forcefully and purposefully, but um, it, 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 it does create true happiness, I think, to, to kind of your original point. And, and I love that mentality. There, there's a great distiller um, at Heaven Hill that passed a few years ago. And what, one of the quotes that I love the most is he said that when I die, I hope it's late in the afternoon so I could have worked a hard, hard full day of work. Um, and like from, yeah. coming from your neck of the woods, it's yeah, such a Kentucky yeah. thing to say. It's totally. But it's like that mentality of like, is it, there is like, the, the, there's something beautiful about waking up, getting out of bed and being like, what, what's it going to be today? Like what, what cool thing is going to happen? What opportunity is going to come up that I get to get after? And like, how do I, how am I going to get to sit down to dinner tonight and feel proud and feel accomplished? And, um, and sometimes you can't always force that. You just have to wake up and, and struggle and fail at something. And, and those are the best days. That's um, I'm, I'm in the middle of reading uh, the growth mindset by Carol Dweck. I'm sure you're familiar with it. If you're not, it's everything you're just saying right now. Um, and in it, she, she starts the book by having talking about giving a puzzle to two sets of five-year-olds. Um, and it's a challenging puzzle. And the ones that uh, they give them an easy one at first, and then the kids either then want a harder one or they say, no, I'm good on the easy one. Um, and there's this great quote of this five-year-old that goes, I, I love a good challenge where the other ones are going, no, no, I'm good with doing it right there. And I always think like that's what it is. Like when you get in the thick of it, right. It's like, no, I love a good challenge. Like you got to roll up your sleeves and uh, embrace it because uh, you're so spot on that the growth comes in the form of struggle. Yeah. And then like, because you had a good challenge, the failure also doesn't hurt. It doesn't hurt me. Like when, if I fail at something that's easy or expected to have been completed, I feel really crappy about myself. <laughs> if I feel something that's difficult, that, that is a genuine challenge, it's like, that's okay. At least I, at least I gave it a shot and tried to, to, to complete it or fix it. Um, I, I, I think you might have met Tim Heller over the years. But he, he recently, there's that famous saying, the grass is always greener. And, and I've often used it over the years, and I, I thought it to be true. I was always like, the grass is always greener. It's, it's important to, to appreciate what you have and not look look across the street at what someone else has um, because the grass is always greener. But we were talking about that. And he says that he was talking to a little kid, little girl, and he said that, and she responded and said, well, yeah, when you water it. And (laughs) so now we have this kind of like running saying, it's like, you want to water something? And it's like, the grass is always greener when you tend to it, when you put work into it. And I love that mentality. Like that's that quote elevated where it's like, the quotes shouldn't be about appreciating what you have. It should be about investing into what you have. Like you have the ability to affect your own domain. If you water it, like just focus on it, care about it and it will get better. It always does. Wow. I love that. Well, yeah, when you water it, uh, children, it's, it's, that's yeah. Children. Um, um, Okay. So back to you and your childhood. So we're, fireworks you're playing tennis ball baseball in the backyard you're in the pacific northwest um then what happens once we get into the the 90s and the 2000s where where does your journey go from there yeah uh, kind of all over the place i 
I was getting into like good natured trouble, like teeping houses and all that stuff. And um, that elevated itself. And stupidly, me and a couple friends decided to burglarize a house and steal some video games. Um, and like the idiots we were, what do we do with video games? But turn them into a local video game shop and put our names down on the, the bill of receipt. And of course, the family, being a smart, thoughtful family, called the shop. And sure enough, they're like, did these 10 games get turned in? And they said, yeah, they got turned in today. Oh, wow, who did it? And it's like, I actually have their home address and name right here. Caught, <laughs> <laughs> uh, caught in process, but I mean, it, it was a severe crime, as stupid as it was. It was, it was serious because it was breaking into someone's home when they weren't there. And so that put me into the system up there. And it was kind of a defining moment in a lot of respects for me. I was 14 at the time, so old enough to know better, but young enough to not really know much about like what juvenile hall and criminal justice system was was really like and it i i, I think in one of in those moments um my buddies each had different paths and um and struggled more in the system and, and i i had a really good probation officer and she really whooped my ass and gave me um a lot of uh it was tough love in the truest sense and, and i don't know why i always felt like she cared about me because she was so hard about it she was just such a hard ass with how she approached the whole thing but she would always finish it with um it's your, it's your choice. It's your decision. She'd go through and we'd talk and she'd say, these are this is what we're going to do next. Um, I want you to do this, but if you don't, then this will happen to you and it's your decision. It's going to be your choice. And, and it, it's weird because I always remember feeling empowered by her. It was like, she's, she's right. It is my choice. And it made me so proud when I would go back a month later to have a meeting with her and I made the choice that she wanted me to. Um, and she didn't have to like, exert further punishment or you know it just didn't be I, I really grew to respect her and i i think ultimately she grew to respect me and uh, my original terms of my probation was four years um i had 250 hours of community service which i completed picking up rocks and cleaning up parks and ultimately she um she she took me to a judge early two years later and, and got me off early and uh i remember too she said she's that she's only had only done that once in the previous five years but she was, um, she was so happy with how, how much I had complied with everything that she set out for me. That she, she didn't feel like I'd be in the system. She felt like it would corrupt me and, and, and make me worse and got me out. But that, that was a really good um, experience for me because I think that much like my friends, like I could have really fallen off the deep end there. Uh, and I can't really tell you why I didn't, but I didn't. Um, maybe it was because of her. Maybe it was just because of uh, something, something else that I was feeling. But um, got out of that and, and kind of straightened out, graduated high school just barely, um, like a, a C average, not, not much of a student at all. But and I think too, if I went to high school now, I might not graduate. I, the, the year that I graduated, 2001, um, the very next year in Washington, they had launched something called WASL. It was like the Washington something standardized learning tests where they, they decided that all high schools would have to graduate students at a certain level. And to prove that you'd have to pass this test. And it was a test I was in no way suited for. Um, so I graduated a year before Wassel and like earned a lot of credits through art class and and uh, in weightlifting and stuff. But my my senior year I did do running start, which was um, you go to a local community college instead of high school, and then you get dual credits. You get credits for the community college. You also get credits for high high school to complete it. And that was amazing. That was like where I first started to really like not not dislike the system of education and um because it was you were you were at 
you write your own will and, and how you went about it. And there, there wasn't a form and a structure that you had to follow. There wasn't, you didn't feel like you were getting run through the system. Like it was just, the, there was a lot of discussion. There was a lot of um, thought. You were encouraged to have challenging and um, and different thoughts than the, the professor and the teacher. And I, I went and did that while I never actually continued on to college. I remember that that was like the moment where I was like, man, this, this is fun. I, I really like this. And I always had a thirst for knowledge and education and I fell in love with classical music at a pretty young age um, and, and avidly listened to that through, throughout high school. And I got into video games um, competitively at that time too. And, and the internet, it was just exploding and you're able to play games online. So that really became one of my biggest passions and, and had some great friends through that. And I was listening to film scores. I started a film score website. And so I had a lot of artistic inclinations and, and just kind of, um, I think non-traditional stuff. Like I really loved what the internet was becoming at the time and the kind of way it was building community. And, um, and I was able to then after high school, knowing that I wasn't going to go to college and, and entrepreneurship was all something I, I was intrigued by. And um, so I, I knew I wanted to explore that, but I really had no direction. And I, I ended up going to Europe. Um, I had friends there that I had played video games with um, a specific game, Age of Empires 2. And I had friends in Russia and in Holland. And I went and uh, over the course of two years, spent, spent a lot of time in Europe um, and really kind of forged bonds over there and um, spent time in Spain. And, and that was really my first toe in the water when it came to bartending um, and, and just came, came back really inspired for, for the world and for travel and history had always been a huge part of my life. And I, I devoured history books. I, I went to three different high schools and there's all, there, it was part because I was getting in trouble. I got moved around and there's nothing harder at that time in life, arguably than getting moved to a high school where you don't know anybody. And like that first day where you walk into the lunchroom and you're looking around and all the tables are partially taken and you have your food and you don't know where to sit. It is such a tough moment. Um, and obviously like, if you have strong social skills and, and you could potentially overcome that, but obviously the, the, your peers at the time too are not really open to it. And because these days I'll, I'll go to conferences and stuff and see his chair, sit down, strike up a conversation with the person next to me, no big deal. But high school is really tough. And so I actually, that first year in high school, I spent every single lunch in the library reading history books and it was just something where it was like, I, I, I don't know what it was, but I remember walking into the lunchroom the first day. I was like, I'm not doing this. And I ended up going to the library and I fell in love with it. I could go there and quietly eat my food and just pour through these books. And so after going to Europe and, um, and, and falling in love with history and classical music, like these all things were, were kind of tying together. Even the video games that we're playing were historic video games or old strategy games and um, I came back and wanted to somehow do something in that world. I wanted, I wanted to travel. I wanted to experience other cultures. I wanted to, to be a part of history and tell stories. And, and I wanted my job to be about learning history and, and, and continuing to read history books like crazy and, and learn about others. And so I, the, the bar world really kind of spoke to me because of that, because there's a romance to bars. They've been around forever. And, and many bars that you walk into have these incredible storied history certainly the drinks do it's like most people would agree that the, the cocktail is the original american art before even jazz 
it's the first thing that we as a nation came together and, and, and did originally that, that didn't come of and from Europe. And, and I, I think that the old classic bar, like it's it just the way that it was twisted into, into stories and films and, and books and people's lives. I just loved it, man. Like the way that you could connect with people from all walks of life and everybody was equal. And the, the bartender themselves were, were the, the person that knew the most people and, and had the most stories and were the most current on events. And it, it just it was a romance with the bar that I couldn't escape. I love the stories of the, the spirits, I, I, everything about it. And, um, and so I quickly came back and was working in restaurants. I was busting tables and I started waiting tables. And at the time really knew I needed to be behind the bar and pushed, um, pushed my manager at the time at the restaurant to, to get me back there. And sure enough, on my 21st birthday, she promoted me to bartender and I started bartending the day I turned 21 in the U S and it was just a dream come true, man. I was so proud of it and loved it. Um, but then at the time I'd been living with my brother and, uh, he, I can't remember why we, why we moved out, but we did. And I moved back in with my mom. So 21 bartending back in with mom. Um, and she said that was cool, but you got to do something. Um, you got to pursue, I don't care what it is. It could be an art form, but you, you have to have something going on in your life. You don't just get to like live, make money and go out and drink and party all the time. That's not good enough. And so I was like, okay, that's, that's a deal. And so I was kind of going through that and we kept having these conversations where she'd bring it up, like, what, what are you doing? What's next? And I wouldn't know, like, I wanted it to just be the bar world. I just wanted, but, but at the time too, it hadn't really been what it is now with this resurgence of like deeply rooted classic bartending it was still very much about party atmosphere and um her and i were sitting watching inside the actor studio which we loved we love movies we both love film we watched them together all the time we loved that show and at the time it was like that it was at the pinnacle of that show's life um and james lipton lipton was just like through the roof inspirational and it was a russell crowe episode and we went through it and it was just like it was such a great episode and at the end of the same thing she's like you got to do something like, oh, I know, I'm, I'll, I'll figure it out. And she goes, what about acting? You love films, what about acting? And I told her, I was like, wait, would that, that, that would be enough? That'd be enough to satisfy you? And she said, yes, I, I would love it if you started learning how to act. And I was like, okay, done. I enrolled myself in the local community college in uh, like an acting 101 course. And it was one of those, another just amazing moment. That, um, my, my instructor was named Diane Hostetler. And she came from New York. She was like a hard-nosed New Yorker. Um, and her acting technique was Uta Hagen, was who she really like worked off of and, and loved. And more than anything, she loved the theater. And, and I think like anything in life, if you're around somebody that's really proficient at what they do and really loves it, really has passion for it, it's hard not to equally love it. Like I've been on job sites where the painting crew will come on. And sometimes they're just, they're just, painters because they need a job and they they throw it together other times you'll watch them paint just a wall and it's spectacular the way they move their hands the way they tape off the walls it's just they are so good at what they do um and like it so much that it's it's like it, it, it's uh it's enrapturing how they go about it and so she was that way with the theater i mean she loved it she lived for it and i i was just um, overnight mostly because of her less about acting but um, I, I was in love with what we were doing, but then the cool part happened where it was like, she started talking about the importance of reading and reading everything and reading plays and reading stories and books and novels. And when you play a, a character 
um, yeah, how much reading you goes into that. And I was just like, now, now she's got me. And so she was doing um, these cool plays that were adapted from John Steinbeck novels. Um, and Sweet Thursday was the first one and they had open auditions and I got cast in it. And then I got to go back and read all these John Steinbeck novels and learn about like the Central Coast back then and Monterey and like in the, in the mid 20th century. And it was just like, I forget the play itself. Uh, the research was so uh, exciting to me. And, and we did the play, it was incredibly fun and well-received and my mom was proud. Um, so then it was like, I, I'm really into this. I, I'd gotten, I was also hooked and uh, obsessed with it and, and addicted. And so I had then after that, that next, um, it was the summer session. So there was no classes. I'd convinced a couple other actors in that community college to self-produce a play. And she left, left us her, um, her playhouse, which for a community college, they had a really beautiful one, a huge theater. I think it was 110 seat theater, but it had a whole like workshop to build sets and a huge, um, costume room like it was a full-on decked out theater really well done and so we we self-produced a play called private wars which is three vietnam veterans sitting around um a psychiatric ward after the the war and so it's a lot of it is just kind of like black box style theater chairs and desks and tables but it was so much fun we um we were able to self-direct and self-produce it and it was like after that point it was like it was a subject matter I really cared about and, and I really got into. And so shortly thereafter, I had a close friend in Seattle who was moving to LA. He got accepted into USC's film school, um, arguably the greatest film school in the world. And um, he moved to LA to do that. And for me, that was just kind of the kicker. It was like, you know what, if I'm, if I'm going to do something, this could be fun. And like, if you're going to actually make money, you got to do film. Like, and so I kind of had that mentality of like, I, I'd love to be a professional actor. I'd love to stay a theater actor because this is what I love. But I also wouldn't mind um, making money. And then the other side of it was, God, and if I could be in a historical film, that would be life altering. And so I, I moved to L.A. Um, shortly after him and, and kind of pursued that single vision and dream of like, I just want to be in a historical film. That's all I care about. And, and then, of course, you get to L.A. and, and the reality is much different and um, I was dirt poor, broke, just like it, it, it. And I never, I never unfortunately took the, 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 like the physical branding side of it serious. Um, I never like really cared much for headshots. I never did, did well on that. I never like even worked on my appearance. I, it, I, I just never, I don't know. I never took the marketing and branding side of like trying to make it an acting serious. And I don't know if that matters or not I just really focused on classes and studying hard but um it really went nowhere I mean I, I had the typical small roles that anybody else would and quickly mentally was frustrated with that so I, I pivoted I, I'll make my own projects um and that'll give me um some type of a platform to launch into some kind of a career and I, I think I'm far more proud of what I was able to accomplish on the filmmaking side of it on writing directing producing and of course a great buddy of yours Eric Cardona uh, worked with him Finally got myself a bartending job in LA, which took over a year. I was delivering groceries and just doing everything I could to, to survive that first year. And finally got a bartending job um, and met some incredible people there and made and produced those films. But uh, Seven Grand came along. At the time I was working at a, at a restaurant in Santa Monica and I was, I was doing bar manager stuff, so inventory and all that. But, but back then the LA Times was still a thing. And, we'd get the paper delivered every, every day so that the businessmen during lunch at the bar could read it. 
And um, on Wednesdays, they would do food and beverage section. And so every Wednesday I did inventory, I'd come in early, count it, and then the papers would come and I'd read the food and beverage section. And, and, and sure enough, one Wednesday, there was an article written about this new whiskey bar that had just opened in downtown LA. And I was, I couldn't believe it. They were writing about my life. It was my bar. Like I, I just couldn't fathom it. Everything that I did, it was overwhelming. Like the, the thought that had gone into it, the pictures, the way they were talking about drinks and whiskey. And immediately that night I drove downtown, went straight to seven grand, walked in and the same thing. It was just, it was overwhelming. I felt like someone had been consulting with me and built a bar for me. I, I just, I, I, it was, it was overwhelming. And I went up to the bar and ordered thinking I was going to have to like, you know, I, I need them to know that I belong here. So I ordered a, mark, a maker's mark Manhattan. The bartender goes, are you sure? I, I, have you had tried it with rye? And at the time I didn't even know what rye was. Um, I was like, no, no. I said, you, you got, this is like the original way you got to try it with rye. And I was like, I'm in. And uh, he stirs it, which it, things have changed so rapidly that I'm sure there's plenty of younger bartenders out there that are, this is like in 2007, <laughs> they're, they're, they're thinking it would be ridiculous not to know what rye is. In 2007, not ridiculous. Nobody did. No. Like in 2007, everybody shook their Manhattans. Um, and, and so the bartender pulls out a glass and, and starts stirring it and, uh, and then pulled out one of these beautiful, dark brandied cherries and topped it with that. And it, the whole, I just was, I couldn't even put together what had just been served me, but I tasted it and it had Carpano Antica and it was the most luxurious, just rich, beautiful, dreamy cocktail I'd ever had. Um, and and that, that was a wrap. And so I, I invested all efforts into getting a job there. And um, about six months later, I got hired as a bar back Friday nights, took it in a heartbeat. The, fortunately, the manager, the new manager that had just started there was from Seattle. And for the first time in LA, my, my, my resume was useless every other bar I went to. I had some good, good quality references on it in Seattle. And finally, I found a, a GM that was from Seattle and saw, saw it. And he was like, oh, that's cool. I used to go there. That, that was enough. And so he's like, yeah, you're great. We'd love to bring you on. We don't have anything right now, but I'll give you a bar backing shift once a week if, if that works. I took it um, and worked my way up from there. And, and, and so that, that bar really became my life. That community, that movement, that cocktail revolution movement um, became everything to me. And it, it satisfied what I was looking for in the film world. And that I was able to travel because of these brands. I, I had, I've, it's insane as it sounds. I've gone to Japan a couple of times. I've been to Ireland a couple of times, Scotland, Canada, Tennessee, Kentucky. Now I've, I've been to all over Mexico through Jalisco and Oaxaca to Cuba. I mean, just these absurd trips that this industry has opened up. Um, so it, it satisfied that incredible part that I wanted to do something professionally that involved exploring cultures. And I think through spirits, you really deeply explore cultures. And then history too, like it, a great bar is living history. And, and so it, it, I, I was still kind of, it was a tough thing to pivot and, and turn away from film because it was such a part of my identity and I didn't want to feel like a failure or a loser. But I, when I took over as GM of seven grand, I got my first bonus check. I think it was like 4,500 bucks or something. And at the time I had committed to make one short film with every bonus check. And that was enough that I could have made a really good film for 4,500 bucks, but I got it and looked at it. And it was the first time that something that I loved in life had given back to me and all film had ever done was just take and take and take and take. 
and I've given so much to it, but it never, ever reciprocated. And there was just this weird moment where I was looking at that check and it was like, I, this feels right. This is organic. Like I'm giving to it and I'm getting, I'm giving and getting. And I, I, that was the moment where it was just like, I'm done with, with film. I, I've given it so much and, and it's never, it's never come back. So, and this here to here is this thing right here in front of me. Like this is such an obvious move. So I, I gave it one film and doubled down on my commitment to the, the bar world and um, really, that's kind of landed me where I am right now. That's such a awesome, awesome story. And I, I want to get into where you are now and your next step from being GM at Seven Grand. Um, but there's like, wh- what do you think it is? I think the the big underlying thing in here to me is that you just you go all in when you commit to something, and you go all in. And whether that was the Russell Crowe inside the actor studio to the bartending job to the to travel in the world playing video games to the self-produced play to reading the LA Times article about seven grand like you you just you go for it and you make it happen where where does where do you think that self-confidence comes from gosh i don't i don't know if it's confidence it's it's a weird thing cuz it's it's like an obsessiveness, obviously, and, and it's, it's, it's kind of an addict mentality of, like, addictions can be really good things, and they can be really dangerous things, and especially if you're not aware of them, I'm incredibly aware that sometimes I'll go too far into something, um, and, and, and even just in the sense of, like, are, like, I'm really into watches right now, like, what a horrible addiction, they're, they're some of the most <laughs> Expensive things on the planet. I, I'll probably never ever get to even see, let alone own any of the ones that I love reading about and learning about. But, um, but it's so fascinating. And it's just one of those, it's, it's like you, you get just one layer in like the onion and it's like, oh my God, there's that much more. I, I, I just have to go a little deeper, a little deeper. And like, it's almost like that with watches where it's just like, wait, now you start learning about the mechanics of it and then the history of it. And then just the, how it all ties together. And it's like, it, it becomes so satisfying to, to take something and, and start to peel it back and, and, and learn about it. And um, I, so I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know really like where that, that particular love of, of, of things comes from when people get it. Because um, I certainly, like some people are more ambitious than others and, and some are, are, are more, passionate about things than others. And I, I have always kind of wondered like in life, my mom has always said that each one of her sons was born exactly who they are today, that she really doesn't subscribe at all to, um, to nature over nurture, or, or I'm sorry, nurture over nature. She fully believes that like in, in the case of her children, it was nature. You're just born this way. And, um, and I think there is truth to that too, that, that some people, some people that do struggle in our world, which is a very much a world of achievement and, um, and ambition, they can really, they, they can find themselves in a tough place when they don't share that societal mentality. And it's obviously that that's where you kind of, it's important to withdraw and, and get to know yourself and, um, and, and get to get to be at a place where where, you, where you're good with who you are and where you're at. And, and I guess what I mean by that is like, it's so easy to, um, to try to find contentment through other things 
through other people, through, um, through imagery, but it's like the, the most, the most satisfying thing in all of life is to kind of fully understand who you are and what you want and what, what you feel satisfaction in and, and to be okay with that. And, and so I, I think that like, I don't know why I love going so deep into stuff uh, other than it's just like, it's endlessly fascinating. Like it, it becomes the more that, that I can learn about something, the more, the more I want to learn the next thing. It's like, it, it, it's that Pandora's box that it, it's, you, you never just want to have something that's surface level. And, and that's true of relationships. It's like the, the best, richest things in life are the, are the ones that you can continue to um, go deeper with. And, and so, yeah, I, and I don't know. I just, it, it goes back to that growth mindset, right? Like you just, you, you weren't going to just go, okay, cool. I did a play. It was, uh, no, we've got this whole space to ourselves and oh, Hey, we're going to do this. We're going to self-produce it. Like you, it, it's that idea of continue to growing and not being satisfied. And, um, yeah. I, I, I think that some people we can, uh, force themselves upon that. And I think some people have more of it than the other. You certainly have more of that like knack of just wanting to just continue to just dig and dig and just be awesome at it. And yeah, uh, I mean, how's this yeah. for some funky, funky thinking is I, I really hate compliments and, and I struggle with them. And I think that something, something that I've found over the years is that whenever I see something I don't know or someone doing something I don't know how to do, I have so much um, reverence for it and it, it, it seems so impressive and so difficult. And I always think that would be so cool to be able to do that or to be in that position. And then once I get there, I'm always kind of like, I, I, I start to lose that reverence in a certain degree because it feels like it, it feels like it was too easy or, or not too easy. It feels like, um, I, I, what am I trying to say here? That, that it doesn't it doesn't match the allure of the unknown that like that, that there's always something to me that's more exciting and attractive about what's around that corner or what's like what is possible what's next like once I, I get somewhere that that never ever really truly fulfills and rewards me quite like what my imagination of it was and the going there, there is. And like, let's even just bring up like going to the distilleries in Kentucky. I can remember a time where I would think about that and just be like, that would be otherworldly. Like I just can't even fathom it. And I, and don't get me wrong. I love and appreciate going there. Sure. But like once, once you, once you get there, it, I can't help but wonder like what's next. Like I want to learn more about this distillery. I want to, now I want to walk over that hill into that Creek down there and see what that's like. And like, it's just this insatiable thirst to continuously, do and go somewhere new and, and kind of, and, and never settle. Um, I, I totally get it. And I, you know, I always, uh, I've got a thing on my wrist right now. It's the journey is better than the end. Right. And it's, yep. I am the, I'm the most unhappy at the end of an event or something, <laughs> whether it's training for a race or, or getting, planning a project or an incentive or whatever it is. Like I'm the most unhappy when that thing is over and I have learned that when I have some, I've got to be planning what the next thing is. Otherwise I'm in a bad place. And it's the process of trying to get there. That is always what it's all about. And I think that's kind of what you're hitting at. 100%. That's exactly it. You're right. Like that's, 
such a well-known, it's, it's about the journey, not the destination. It's exactly what it is that it's like, you, you really have to savor those moments because the destination, I think maybe for some people, there are all those people that are just like, man, I just want to get to the point where I get to like, relax every single night and kind of sit outside for an hour and, and just savor this beautiful dream home that I've built for myself. And for me, it would be like, I, I have awful. Uh, right. It, I, <laughs> I, I would just, I guarantee I'd get there and just be like, what's next? What's, what's the next dream home? What's the next, like, how, I just don't know if we'll ever get to a place where um, I can just stop and savor what, what's, what's, what's here. It'll, there'll, there'll always be a desire to, to learn more to go go new places to achieve more um and and yeah everything you just said i mean it's it's so true and, and i don't know if that's true of everybody i know that there's other people out there that don't have that same um drive and i think that that's okay too because there's also kind of like it, it it could be difficult to um to to be in a place where you're always trying to seek something additional and so you, you have to find some kind of comfort in and knowing that there, as long as you're putting your your focus on on things that are impactful and rich and meaningful, then I think that it's a good trait to have. I think it could become obviously a very dangerous trait um, if you're if you're using um, hurtful and harmful vices to satisfy that that inclination. Right. Um, you had the, you you shared the moment of getting your first bonus check. Um, as GM, and I, I want that. To, I want that to take us into how you got to where you are now and what those steps were. But um, I, I think there's something to be said about in all of this of the next thing and the next thing. It's also like you have an ability to trust yourself when you know it's time to move to the next thing, right? Like you knew at that moment when you got that, it was like, no, you know what? Acting, film, you, you aren't returning this. I'm done with you. You didn't question it. It was just like, no, I'm going to continue on this path here. Right. Like, don't you think that self-trust yeah. is a big part of that as well? Man, it's it. What that is to me is, is it's actually, it, it ties into what we just talked about. It's less about trusting what's to come. And it's about really getting excited for change and for growth and for, for endeavoring into something new. And that's happened to me many, many times in life. Like even just like dropping what I was doing in Seattle, moving to LA that happened within the decision. Well, honestly, it subconsciously happened. My, my dog passed and I, I had a childhood dog. Um, and, and after, after he passed, it was almost instantaneous. Um, it was just like, cool. That was it. That's all I had that I was waiting for. And within a month I was gone. Um, and within a month, I, I really, I could have left earlier, but I went and I had to do one last uh, road trip through the Northwest and went east through East Washington to Northern Idaho through Montana, uh, Wyoming, Oregon, Idaho was wonderful. But um, yeah, it's, it's whether it's jobs, whether anything in life, it's just like, there's this element of, I love dropping everything and moving on. And I live in Austin, Texas right now. It's something similar, like leaving LA and, and coming out here was almost as, as kind of short and succinct of a decision where it was just, um, it's time to go. And, um, and, and that never has been a fearful thing for me. It's always been a relief to get rid of as many possessions as possible and uproot and go somewhere fresh. I, I love it. That's, that's really, you, you, uh, did you, have you, did you watch the last dance, uh, 30 for 30? 
Man, I'm two episodes in. Okay. Well, there's, I think, I don't know when, it might have been, it's towards the end, but Phil Jackson has this line about them trying to, or then talk about if he's going to come back the last year. And he says something to the extent of, we had a good run. It's time to go. Right. Mm. It, it wasn't like, I'm trying to, for, it's like, no, it's, it's time to move on. Like, that's yeah. just the way. And that's, and I, and I think that, that that's kind of, I've experienced that before as well, that it's like other people may be pulling at you that want you to do something, but it's important to look at what the motivation is on that end and to listen to when you know it's time to go. It's time to yeah. go. Yep. And, and there's, there's something like brilliant in, in the freedom that moving on gives you. It's like, it's, it's not to say that you, you shouldn't cherish um, the experiences that got you to that point and, and appreciate it and be grateful for it. But there's, there's something very powerful about be, being willing and able to, to moving on and be able to do so quickly. And um, I ultimately, I think that that's like the grief pro- process in a lot of respects is all about like to, to grieve for something at some point, it's acceptance is the final phase. And, and, and then that's when you move on to the next thing. So in a, in a lot of respects, it, it's something that we need just in life as humans, um, as hardships come up and, and as difficult things come up, the quicker you can reposition your mind into what's next and, and know that you'll always get through it. You know, th- this too shall pass like time heals all wounds. You, something better is always around the corner. It just always is. And um, I, have you, I, I was t- talking to um, a friend yesterday about the COVID crisis and we were kind of both lamenting on just like how, how tough it is not knowing when this thing's going to end. And he had such a great perspective as he said, I, I, I don't really think about when it's going to end because nobody knows. What I think about is every single time that, that a day goes by, that's one less day in COVID that I'm going to have to spend. So he's almost like, he's taking the days down knowing that whatever the, the total finite number of, of this, this disaster we're in is going to last every single day that goes by gets him one step closer to the end, wherever the end is, who knows, but I, I love that perspective that um, you focus on what you can. And it's like right now we, we, we got three terrible months of COVID behind us and that's of the total number, whatever that'll end up being we're, we're at least that's all back and, and we'll never have to go through that again. That's such a good point. And that goes back to what you said about repositioning your mind. The quicker that you can reposition your mind when something hit happens, uh, the, the better off uh, you are. And it's right. So even if it's a million days of COVID, um, you were at least three months through it. Yep. And, and you will adapt to it. Like you will, you will get used to that pain and that suffering. Um, it's, it's a funny thing because I was talking to a buddy like a week ago about pain and suffering. And, and he brought up that he always thought about um, when people mentioned hell, like the worst thing that could happen is you go to hell. And he was always like, well, eventually that hell's not going to suck anymore. You get used to it after a while. And um, it like the only thing that sucks is, is um, different bad things happening to you. Like you, you can't adapt to, any terrible situation in life and, and work your way through it. Like first time you get, you, you stub your toe, it hurts like hell. But if that's something that you do on a regular basis, eventually it doesn't hurt as bad. You can, you can get used to it. And um, I think that's true of, of most hardships in life that it's like, it's not to say that you, you want to get used to it, but 
uh, once you go through something and you, you kind of see how bad it is, the, you have a chance to kind of look at it and be like, actually, it wasn't as bad as I thought. Huh. I can, I can survive that. Right. There's a, uh, you know, I run the, like uh, Spartan races and the, uh, the found, cause then they're just known for like, I, I love them because it's a similar thing. I'm, I'm getting that suffering in another way. Right. So it's like I go to Vermont and the weather's terrible and you're stuck on a hill and you, you're running out of fuel and you, you just like, I am, I am, I am in it. I am in it right now. But what happens after the fact is that that carries over into the rest of your life, right? And it, yeah. like, then, then, then something else happens, you know, it's not that big of a deal, right? Yeah. It's like when you, when you participate in suffering, your happiness actually rises. Yep. It's this weird thing. It, it's um, so true. And it's that combination of you, you, you expand your, your, your knowledge of what you can endure and, and ultimately the worst things in life are imagine it's your imagination. It's always it's the, right. It's the, the truth. Of the unknown. Yep. And I said that before, like, I don't think anytime when your imagination runs wild and you think about worst case scenario, like that never happens. Right. Like that worst case scenario when you go, like, oh, this could happen. Then this could happen. Like the really bad one that we uh, fester in our mind never happens. Very rare. No. Yeah. No, not at all. And it like, and, and, and then obsessing over those thoughts to create so much stress. And, and we all know how deadly stress is like, it's, it's one of the absolute worst things that you yeah. can put yourself through. And so it's there, there does come this point where you just have to, you have to build up a self belief that you can get through bad times, hard times, and, 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 and always thinking about the future and, and working towards that and, and trying to, trying to chase something better and bigger and, and more exciting and interesting. And um, it, it applies to extreme things in life and, and not so extreme things in life. Humans, well, man. We're, humans, man. We're a, a fickle bunch. Okay. Well, I, I wanted to get back to so seven grand. So then talk to, tell us just a little bit about the history of pouring with the heart and kind of the expansion and what your role is and all of, all of that. So seven grand LA. Now we're in Austin. Just take us through that part. Yeah. So the, the, um, the company formerly two, one, three hospitality founded, um, with the area code of downtown Los Angeles, two, one, three had outgrown that we, we opened up in San Diego in 2012 in Austin, Texas in 2014. And then in Denver, Colorado in 2018, um, and so as that started to happen, it became clear that the company um, needed to have a new identity that, that didn't speak to its original goal, which was to build uh, 10 bars in downtown Los Angeles in 10 years, and, and was able to achieve that. And as we were looking at, at doing projects in other cities and other communities, it became clear that we needed to find a, a name that included everybody in it. And so we had worked with a brilliant branding fellow out of Manchester, England, and he, he came and visited LA and said that he just wanted to go to the bars um, by himself and just experience them. He didn't want any kind of VIP thing. So he spent a couple nights going around to the bars and then afterwards had a meeting. And, and he, he said that there was clearly a, a link to all these, these bars. There, there was undeniably a, a thread and fabric that, that wove them all together. What he latched onto was um, how much the staff cared, how much... How, how warm they were, 
how giving they were, um, and, and how, how much they genuinely cared about the people and the bar and what was going on. And, and he felt like, and from his experience, that was really rare in the bar world. And, and so he started down that road and we all, we kept talking about what, what the company meant to us and um, getting as many people on the staff to contribute as well. And, and so he kept coming back to this idea of heart. Um, there's, there's like, there's a genuine heart that you all have for this, um, this industry, this business um, and, and what you guys are doing. And, and so after much back and forth, um, that, that he proposed that idea of um, pouring with heart. And it's obviously a double entendre. It's literally pouring, um, uh, pouring bottles and pouring beer um, with heart and soul. But I think more importantly, it's the outpouring. It's the overflowing of heart that, that to me really does define a great bar. That I, it's very easy to to look to another program and to replicate the quality of cocktails they're doing. It's even very easy to make quality cocktails at home. Um, and and so a good drink it, in and of itself is not enough. It's not enough to want people to go out and spend more money at a bar away from their homes. And and so what we've really tried to latch onto is that to to really make the experience experience exceptional and, and special is that there's, there's gotta be a, a, a deep connection with each other and a deep passion for what you're doing and, and um, kind of letting the world pause and fade away for a moment. And that, that, that little interaction that you're having with the bartender or with your friend at the bar, that becomes all that matters. Um, and, and so we, that, that's the, the new company is really what we've focused on is trying to simplify this business and trying to identify what we really love and it's kind of been become twofold. Um, said who founded the company and um, is leading it currently is, is really a huge proponent of, of building careers. And that's kind of, that, that became his passion and, and, and goal in life was to, to build careers in an industry that otherwise was really kind of looked at as odd jobs and, and temp jobs in certain cases too. And there were unquestionably lifelong bartenders, but they're usually in neighborhood joints and, um, it still never gave the rewards of a, of a quote unquote career. It was just, it was something they loved to do, but it, it never gave back as much as it should, as much as they gave to it. And so that's kind of become what, what we've, we were striving for right now is we're, we're trying to redefine what a career in this world looks like and, and to build as many of them as we can. So we have a goal right now that by the year 2030, we want to have built 2030 careers. And so it's 2030 by 2030. And that's what we're, we're shooting for right now. And, and to do that, we're really kind of simplifying it down to we'll get there if we can continue to build regulars and if we can continue to retain our staff and take care of our staff. And so they, they feed each other. It's the, the, the better that we can take care of our people and our staff, the better they're going to take care of customers. The more of those customers are going to come back and bring friends and just, and then the more that there's, there's regulars at the bar that are, giving off good vibes to the bartenders and take care of them. It'll just, it'll be reciprocal. And this kind of flywheel just turns on, on, on over itself. So building regulars, building careers, and they, they feed each other. And, um, so I had the, the chance um, when we came out here to Texas to, to come out and open a couple of bars for us. And then I, I did, did that in Denver as well. And then while this, um, while this rebranding and, and reimagining phase kicked up, we, we wanted to, unify all of our bars we had different concepts at the time and we had cocktail bars and we had breweries and we had neighborhood bars and 
um, we had restaurants and we had uh, what we call spirit bars, bars that really just highlight one, one individual spirit. We have one for whiskey, one for rum, and one for agave, mezcal and tequila. And, and we wanted to, to really unify all the operations of the company. So I was offered the role of chief operating officer a year and a half ago. Um, that was um, prior to us um, packaging the whole company into one and rebranding. And so that was really the, the, the main push last year was to successfully do that, which we did July 1st of last year. Um, so just over a year ago. And then this past year, we were really putting, putting down all the bricks that we needed to, to, to grow in a healthy way and, and to do so without compromising what we stood for and the quality of the bars that, that we were building and had loved. And then of course got punched in the face when, um, when COVID hit in March, like everybody else, and, and we were shut down overnight. Um, it, with, within three days, all three states had closed and um, the whole company was furloughed and um, really a tough time. But like all of us, we didn't really know where this thing was headed. And we were super optimistic that it was just going to be a couple months and we'd get through it. And um, we were fortunate to be one of the company, companies that got a PPP loan from the government to cover payroll, which we did. We brought back um, all of our staff in April and were able to pay them for eight weeks. But of course, this virus has just gotten worse and worse in the United States and um, to the point where we were able to reopen and have now been closed down again. So it's it's been a, a terribly difficult year for us as a company, but we're we're confident that this industry is here here to stay. And, and I, I really think that that's probably a, a thought shared with a lot of others, but there's, th this will pass. They always do. And, um, and bars will come back in, in a big way. And I think that we're going to be able to get right back on track, but this is unquestionably the hardest moment that this industry has ever suffered, even worse than prohibition, like prohibition, you could still take your bar underground and serve right. drinks. Like this, this is a crazy environment where it's, um, it, it, we, we've just been shut down overnight. And, and there's, there's not been a lot of um, help or guidance on, on how to navigate it. And so we're doing it as best we can. But at this point, we're, we're of the mindset that we probably can't open any of our bars this year. And we're hoping that the virus will, will get better and we'll be able to get back to it next year. Um, I love the idea of the simplicity in the building careers. Um, and it's something that you and I uh, talked about. Uh, we talked about when I was the, uh, started as fitness and wellness manager at the resort in Playa Vista and about how you build culture. And um, I always, you, you talk about that, the, the heart thing. And I, it was something that I always, when I worked at seven grand, I've said this to you before that there was always this element of, I was just curious. I was like, hey, Andrew, how did you get people to do the things that they did um, and to go above and beyond because on paper, it's just like you said, it's just, you're just making a drink and we've all worked in those places, but there's this, you have this knack to get people to do more and to give more of themselves, um, in creating that culture. And, um, I think it goes back to the taking care of the staff thing. Yeah. Um, to me, I, I really do. I always felt like that we were taken care of and we, we, we keep coming back and coming to work regardless of how tired you were or, whatever happened in a night, you know, the things that would, things that would happen that would get somebody else to leave that job in a different place. You didn't leave it. 
You just yeah. you fought you fought through it. Um, and I think that that's so that's so big. Um, I was I just wanted to make that note. Um, yeah. There was some, yeah. It, uh, man, there, yeah. Well, it's just it's so cool to hear because it like I I think that well, our industry in general has a lot of that. There's there, there's a deep bonding that takes place in a, in a close working environment like a bar where it's the the rush comes on out of nowhere and it's really intense and the only way you get through it is if you band together and and you drop your ego and and you work through it and it it like there's there's something really beautiful about the the brotherhood and the kinship that is built with with bar staff behind a bar and um and, and i think that at, at the end of the day too even if you have even if you have a not so good boss that doesn't really care for the people, you can still have these incredibly deep bonds. And if all you add on top of that is a boss or an owner that, that, that appreciates and understands how tough that job is and, and how much the crew's going, going through to get the job done right and do it well and can give back, like it, you can really create something special and magical. Cause there, there is, there is a heightened level of, um, of bonding that takes place like maybe uh, tell me this is a, a, a loose example but let's just say like at the dmv like if i was to be brought on as a consultant to dmv and be like we want to create this really incredible kinship and brotherhood with all, all the people that work here you have to find it through something outside of their day-to-day -day tasks because those are so repetitive and um th there's no urgency there you have to create some type of of weight and importance in their work and, and like at the bar, the work itself isn't that important. You're serving drinks, but keeping up with the people next to you and supporting them is really important. And so I, that's such a crucial part of creating people's willingness to go further than they're comfortable with is, is doing it for somebody else. And, and, um, and I think that that's kind of the key in, in anything in life. Like you can always go a little bit further if, if you're doing it for something outside of yourself, if, if you're doing it for your own benefit, your own gain or your own self-interest, you're, you're only going to have so much to give. But if, if, you, if you find a deeper and better purpose that, that extends beyond yourself and ideally extends to others, you're going to have an unlimited well of energy and, and passion and desire to take care of that job and to do it as good as you can. It's man, it's so spot on, and it's so spot on what you said about the the not good boss, and something that I've said, and I forget who I took this. It's been said before, but um, when you look at, and we're going to get into this in a second, but when you look at like a coach, talent doesn't care how much you know. Talent just cares that you care, right? Mm -hmm. And it's it's like people will do anything if you if they know that you care, that you have their back, um, and yep. that you, they they the the supervisor whoever it is understands what that the team is going through and that they're not afraid to roll up their sleeves which is something you've always been willing to do and to get into the trenches or know that you've done it before and um yeah i think it's a big part of it yep yeah that's a powerful thing i used to i don't know if when you had started i started saying this yet but at some point with um with new barbacks i got my i got my little like day one speech going um it was, it, it was always the two things. Thing number one was I, I only need you to bring 
decency and hustle to this job. That's it. You got to be a kind, decent human and you got to, you got to learn how to hustle. You got to be able to turn up the gear to six. You, you can't just have three gears. We, you got to be able to go all the way. If you can bring those two things to the table, I'm going to teach you everything else. I don't want you to, to sweat anything else other than being a good person, a kind person and being able to work hard. And then the other thing I tell them is that I will also never ever ask you to do something I haven't done myself. If I ever see something that needs to get done and I've never done it, I'll be the first one to take that on. And, and, and I think that there is, there, there is an importance in, in those two approaches where it's like, you're, you're going to be taken care of. We're going to teach you everything you need to know about this job, but I can't teach you how to be just a fundamentally good person. And, and I can't teach you to love hard work. Those, those are things you have to know. And, but everything else, I, I got your back. I'm going to cover that. If you don't know it, it's my fault, not yours. I'll teach you. We'll get you there. And, and, and you're never going to have to go do something that, that we haven't done ourselves, that we haven't ourselves tried to explore, improve, and, um, and master before we pass that task off to you. That's so, so that's, that's it. And it's so simple. And it, you, you boiled it down there. And then that's also such an example of just taking extreme ownership. Um, that if you, you tell somebody to do something that a bad leader will go, well, why don't they know how to do that? Like a good leader will sit there and go, okay, so they, I haven't, I haven't taught them. They, they don't know. I, something's falling through the cracks. Now, if three times down the line, they're still not getting it and you've taken the time to do it, then there's a bigger issue. But at least initially you taking on that ownership yourself of saying, I've got you. is so powerful. Yeah. And that's that. A hundred percent. And that's that element of um, that, that when something goes wrong, either I, so one of two things is not working, the people or the systems. And if, if you, you as a leader should always be looking at your people. You need to know where they're at, how they're feeling and, 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 and what they're going through. And so if you believe in your people and you know that these are good people, they're hardworking people and the job is not getting done, it's a broken system. And that's on you as the leader. So I have a, a little post-it note on my monitor that I often look at, but it says solve the root. And I think the hardest thing for me transitioning into leadership from doing the jobs myself was that I always wanted to get in and, and put out the fire with everybody. And in a lot of respects, I felt like that's what did give me credibility as, as a leader and respect was I would get in, get in there and get it done. And I started to learn that that can be, that can be a, a fault only if you do not also then at the end of the fire once it's been put out investigate it understand how it happened and make sure it never happens again anywhere else and so it's it's so important as a as a leader and crucial to always be thinking a little bit deeper about what's happening in in, in the organization that's not going well and understanding the very root cause of it and you might have to go two or three or four or five layers deep to find it but then that one's on you to fix and I think that's just the weight of problems that you tackle as a leader are always bigger. I, I do think that oftentimes as you, as you step into management leadership positions, you don't often work as hard, or I should say you don't work as much. Um, but what you do is you take on far bigger responsibilities. The rocks that you put into your bag weigh a hell of a lot more. And like, let's just use hospitality as an, as an example, since we're, we're there, like you may only interact with one customer a night but you interact with the hardest customer, the one that is frothing at the mouth, screaming, yelling, they're so upset. That's the one that you step in and you say, guys, I got this. 
you go do your thing, you take care of everybody else. I'm going to take on the burden and weight of this one. And over the course of 500 customers that walked through the door that night, you only helped one of them, but you helped the one that the team needed you to the most. And, and, and whatever other industry you're in, that's the same deal where it's, it, you have such a great responsibility in leading people to take care of them that oftentimes if you do get too weeded and too focused on, on putting out fires and doing the, all the tasks driven work, that you're going to miss those big, big opportunities to step in and take the weighty, heavy, high responsibility tasks off other people's shoulders. And so I'm always trying to find those things and, and, and look and see, see where can I take, take, take something off somebody's plate. that's really burdening them and holding them down and hurting them. And, um, and, and, and even if I'm not putting in as many hours as they are, I know that I'm at least putting in as much as, as they are. Um, the, I love the rock analogy and I've told you this before, Andrew, when this is that I created my own post-it note that said, solve the root, not the problem. I stuck it on my laptop. Um, and it was glued there. And, um, I, uh, I, I gave it to, um, Serge who took over my position when I decided to leave to, to come back to school. I gave it to, I gave it to him because it's something that I was trying to impart to him and I talked to him about. Um, that you always got to be solving the root, not the problem, stay out of the weeds that in that role, um, when you are the, when you are the head person, um, you, you've got to be above it all. Um, mm -hmm. and you've got to, and to, yeah, to dig back in there. So, um, yeah. that's one of, one of my favorite ones, solve the root, not the problem, solve the root, not the problem. Anytime I ever gotten anything that was a problem, anything, well, I, was like, I can't figure this out. Any, the minute I reset and said, solve the root, not the problem, I eventually got there. Yep. Um, yeah, it's, it's so true. We're getting a little long in the tooth here. So I, I want to just, I want to rapid fire a couple things at you real quick. We could, we could do this all day. Um, but uh, quickly tell us about uh, huddles. Um, something which is something I love that you did and something that I've tried to implement as well. You, you uh, condense things um, and really, really made time efficient. efficient. Tell us about huddles. Yeah, those are they're they're a daily activity and brief and short, but it's it's a chance for everybody to to come together and, and however you want to distribute your teams, and it, it both solves communication, which most teams fracture or hurt the most through through miscommunication or no communication. So it gives it gives you and forces you into a rhythm to communicate with each other, um, but it also helps. Uh, recenter the team on what matters most. And I think that it's, it can be so difficult to really have priorities, have good priorities, clear priorities and ignore everything else. Most people all, always get consumed with what's urgent, what's right in front of them. Like whatever's the loudest, noisiest, flashiest thing is typically where they spend their time. And I think that's the 80, 20 rule. You can get 80% done in 20% time um, applied in a lot of ways, but I think that that comes from people not thinking things through deep enough into and prioritizing. Like what, what can I do that really matters? Not what's, what's like right in front of me and, and necessary. And so the huddle also gives you a chance to come together in a, on a regular rhythm and talk about what your priorities are. And the skill, it, it's a true skill set to learn how to set priorities. It, it takes, takes some people years to actually start to get into that mindset of being able to identify the one thing that, they, that is most important that if you get this done today, 
you could leave and go home at noon and still sit down for dinner and say, I had a great day. I got this done today. And, and so often people will not, not create any priorities and just kind of do busy work all day. Um, or they do have a priority, but strangely, they'll do it last. They'll, they'll keep, they'll leave it. And then all of a sudden it's three, four, five o'clock and oh, I'll get to it tomorrow. Damn it. So it's like, if you can spend 15 minutes a day looking over what you're trying to get accomplished. And if that ties into something like that, you're trying a weekly, a bigger priority on the week and maybe a bigger one in the month and an even bigger one in the quarter. And they're all, they're all kind of linked up to each other. You can be incredibly effective at, at getting genuinely getting things done. And, and also it's very freeing where you, the moment you give yourself permission to let everything else go, that's not a priority. It's not important. It's a huge breath of fresh air and a, a relief to just say, I, I don't need to, respond to emails today. I need to do this. This is really important. This will matter. If the emails are important, they'll be back on my desk tomorrow. I'll get to them. Um, and, and so that's the, really the nature of the huddle is to force communication and to practice that art of, of trying to eliminate all the BS and noise and identify the one most important thing you can do right now to move your organization forward. I love the, I love the email thing because that is so we can you you uh, you taught me that that idea that like the, the emails are always going to be there now you can scan them real quick um, and and certainly something that I started to do will do is that emails get they get shifted to the end of the day like everything that's big and important has got to happen early when my brain is fresh and I, I like the big ideas the creative stuff all those things have got to happen early for me. Um, and then all the reactive stuff can be at the end of the day. Because really, at the end of the day, emails are just reactive. Um, yeah, that's such a good point. And you're right. Early in the day, you you are you have energy and, and you're you're emotionally more available and, and fresh. And it's in the world of whiskey, like all serious tasters, they do all their tasting first thing in the morning because their palates are fresh. And after a long day of being in the world, your palate kind of dries out and gets flattened and, and gets desensitized. And it's the same for you as a person. By the end of the day, you don't have that much left to give. I didn't know that about whiskey tasters. That's 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 good. I like that. They know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, a couple couple things right here. Um, best purchase you've made in the last. Best purchase during COVID for under twenty five bucks. Ooh, um, under twenty five bucks, huh? <laughs> no, I've been on a wicked budget uh, <laughs> throughout this whole thing. So I have purchased almost nothing, but I sent my nephew uh, a microscope. He's turning four, so it's like a kid's microscope, and that was under twenty five bucks. And then uh, his birthday's today, actually. So I'm Aww. really excited. <laughs> I'm excited yeah. about that purchase. That's a great purchase. Um, yeah, it, it comes with all these cool slides that like, I, I, I don't know how serious of a microscope it is, but I'm sure it's just a cool thing to start to do and um, and think about. Right, yeah, it's the thinking that'll come from it. The, the big picture thinking that we've just talked about. Yeah. Um, favorite, uh, well, we, we've said about, we've said a ton of them here, but like, do you have a quote that you go back to a lot like it's kind of your, your go-to. Hmm. Yeah. I do have so many of them for, for the longest time on my email. Um, I had, I think it's credited to Abraham Lincoln, but I think it's credited to a lot of people. 
but it was uh, judge each day not by the harvest you reap, but by the seeds you sow. And and I've always really loved that. It's like a hell of a day is not one where you get a lot; it's where you give a lot. Give a pick me up song, a song like you're you're not feeling it. You need something to get you up. What do you what do you listen to? Do you use music? We talked about your classical music. Is there, or is there something else that you? It, it changes. I, I go I go through periods where I'll, I'll I more lock into a style or an era, and then I'm just on it nonstop. But I, I probably have a few recurring ones. Definitely classical music, uh, film scores like those two are are most played. But since moving to Texas, I've really gotten into all forms of country music. Um, so that's kind of my, my current feeding frenzy. But yeah, like like pick me up tunes. Um, man, it depends on the mood, right? Like I, I, in a roundabout way, sometimes for me, like really kind of really rich, deep, sad even music can be really fulfilling. Um, so like, I, I think like, uh, I, I, I'm just gonna pick a random film score because I have somebody that I love. I love um, James Horner's The New World. And it's like, it, he mixes in even the nature of, of the film with his, his music. There'll be like bird chirps at times and stuff. It's, but it's like, it's a very gentle, beautiful, reflective, but for me, really fulfilling um, piece of music. And it's maybe 45 minutes, but I'll listen to that thing, man, and I'm recharged. I'm, I'm ready to go. Last one. Why should, because I read this on your recommendation, why should all leaders read The Score Takes Care of Itself? Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, one of so many pivotal books. I, 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 I loved it because there's so much to it. And there, there's, it has all the ups and downs of, of achieving something. But ultimately, it's, it's about team building. And it's, it's about working with others. And I think it's kind of in the title of the book, the score takes care of itself. It's you, you can't do something for the end result. You can't, you can't be fighting for that. It's you have to do everything else. And if you do, the score does take care of itself. Like the, the success takes care of itself. The end result takes care of itself. So I think the, the broad message of that book that it's, it's about the processes and, um, and all the little, little moments and people involved in, in achieving something that matter um is is universally true in everything in life awesome well andrew um so that folks that are literally people listening all across the country pouring with the heart on social media yes is a great place for people to see if you have a bar in your area no there's no the so just pouring with heart pouring with heart pouring with yep. heart pouring with heart um on social yeah. media and um Everybody should know that um, if you haven't learned anything else from this conversation with Andrew is that he will hit his goal um, by 2030, regardless COVID or not. And um, so I encourage everybody to pour with the heart, check them out and to see um, if you can get a drink there um, and follow what they're doing even, even during this. Um, because I can speak to being, of having been in many of the establishments and they are exactly everything that Andrew said today. Um, Man, that, you just fired me up. You're absolutely right. Like we are go, going to get there and it's going to be so sweet. So yeah. Yeah. It'll be even sweeter. Yeah. It'll taste even sweeter. 
Well, thank you so much, Andrew. I really, really appreciate it. Um, and uh, th this has been a, been a true, true pleasure for me. Thank you. Thank you, Rob. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it.